0: issue for all women.
1: Hello there, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I know we've got some stiff competition for your attention today, given the Lionesses are in the World Cup final. If you're listening to this beforehand, I hope it's a distraction from all the nerves and if you're listening to it afterwards, I hope this is coming to you in a world where we've won. This week, I'm chatting to the writer Caroline Moran about her new BBC sitcom, hempocalypse we talk about a whole lot of stuff including hemp parties working class women on telly and why if you need someone to play danny dyer only the real danny dyer will do i'll let you get on with it until next time hi hannah here i am joined by caroline moran welcome to standard issue thank you i'm delighted to be here nice to talk to you Hannah. now we're talking on thursday morning this is going out on Sunday, but we're talking on Thursday morning. Hempocalypse launched this week. How's that feeling? Are you a read the reviews person or are you a hide the, from
0: the reviews person? I am a hide from the reviews person whilst also sort of being inevitably curious. So my ideal is people go, the reviews are in and they're great. And then I don't have to know any more than that. But I feel like For me, reviews are a bit mentally destabilising. So uh, I tend to keep away from them. Yeah. But they're all mainly good so far, I believe. So, which is the best because I don't have to engage, but also know that it's
1: it's good. I haven't (laughs) read any either. Partly because I just don't think they're particularly helpful before you do an interview. But I know loads and loads and loads of people in the arts who just don't bother or do it a year or two later and then think, what was I worrying about? All the reviews were great. I think it all still does. Hang on, who reviews it? And there are yeah. way, way, way too many men still reviewing. I think, I think the proportion of men reviewing women's writing is too high still.
0: Yeah, and especially in comedy, I think... Because it's so, you know, it's totally subjective and something that some people find hilarious, other people find absolutely not hilarious. Mm. And that's totally as it should be. But I think if you're if you're aiming to do something bold and big in comedy, inevitably there are going to be people who are like, that big, bold thing is awful and I hate it. Mm. Um, and that's totally fine. And I accept that.
1: I'd like to know what came first, the idea of writing something. On a hen party, or the idea of writing something at the end of the world,
0: they sort of coalesced that the end of the world has been a longstanding fear slash interest of mine, and then gradually accumulating Hindu experience, <laughs> I sort of thought there is something there's a kind of nihilism on sometimes on a Hindu especially late night when you know it's the third day and you've just finished the archery and now you're in a karaoke <laughs> booth. So, the idea was basically what if this never ended? Like, what if I was on this Hindu forever and all of civilization went away and I was just stuck with this random collection of women for eternity? How would that turn out? And that was kind of the, the coalescence. And I also sort of like the high conceptness of it as well, because I always think it's nice to see women doing the sort of things that would be in a Hollywood movie. Mm. And kind of this is my attempt of at doing that, of kind of, you know. It's not about getting the kids to school. It's about fighting for survival when civilization has been destroyed, and that's a niche I'm going really into at the moment.
1: I've actually only ever been on one hen do. I think my friends know me well enough that they don't invite me because <laughs> <on their heads. laughs> I find the idea of them slightly terrifying. And then when I did actually go on one, which wasn't a friend of mine, it was somebody who was marrying a friend of mine, and I okay. felt really touched that they'd invited me, so I went. And I hated it for an entirely different reason than I thought I'd hate it. I thought I'd hate it because of all the sort of knob ephemera. <laughs> but actually, it was that it was really badly organised. And there's just nothing right. worse than being with 12 women and then somebody going, so where should we go then? And I was just oh, like, have no. we not thought about this before we all got yeah. in our cars yeah. and drove
0: here? yeah. Oh, and that's the worst because then it's like everywhere's full and busy yeah. and then you just end up being a sort of herd, just roaming around the streets. Someone's got to go to the cash machine and get some money out. So that takes 10 minutes out of proceedings. Someone doesn't feel very well. Someone doesn't want to drink. Someone's been to that place before, doesn't want to go there again. And then, yeah, just a, a, a mass group with no leader or schedule yeah. is is a, is a very bad thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was hell on earth. <laughs> Nobody's ever invited <laughs> me to one since. I have been on a couple of stag <laughs> which are... Horrific in a different way, I have to say. I wanted to ask you how lockdown was for you. Only because I've always secretly suspected I might I might do well in an apocalypse. <laughs> if it didn't involve too much physical activity, I could be like the thinker, the maker. I'm right. I'm quite good at saying, Okay, we need a thing. What do we have that we can vaguely approximate it with with the stuff that we have? You're a trier. You're a, I you're, am. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but when I was in lockdown, I think it really reinforced that idea in me because I was on my own for like four months and I didn't go mad. And I managed to sort of get around a number of problems that I had by, you know, YouTube tutorials and having to fix things to myself. <laughs> and now I actually think I could fully boss it in an apocalypse. How do you think you would
0: fare? And my original question how was your lockdown? I mean, I should say very much that Hempoclipse is not, it doesn't in any way come from lockdown because I actually wrote the first two episodes in 2018. Oh, really? So yeah, so I'm, I'm very much not drawing on, you know, any of what the world went through for it. It was, yeah, very much a kind of pre, pre pandemic invention. I mean, for me, lockdown was, I mean, obviously, you know, there was all the kind of fear and horror initially, but I'm basically quite, much quite a sort of hermit in mm. in my natural personality and I'm very very introverted and I live alone anyway. So for me lockdown I felt sorry for everyone because people on lockdown were sort of living the life that I live and for most people they they don't like that. Um, <laughs> but, fully but, agreed. <laughs> yeah fully agree. Yeah but for me that was alright. Yeah. I had a lot more zooms than I normally would but yeah I think Bizarrely, actually, I was just because I, I didn't have I didn't have any of the things that made lockdown really difficult for people. I haven't got kids. and um, I don't really have a kind of huge social circle because I get my energy from from other things. So, yeah, I just I really felt for everybody and also felt that it was proof that I live in a slightly unusual way and that that doesn't suit most people. The kind of you know, people calling clawing up the walls being like, I've got to go out, I've got to do something. I was sort of like just lie in my hammock with my cat. so that's mainly what I did
1: Is that from coming from a big family do you think? Because my my dad was one of 13 and then when you say oh it's really sad that Jim hasn't got married and you just Jim is just living his best life because he's got five minutes to himself
0: for the first time in so many years I mean absolutely there was you know because there was I'm one of eight siblings and we were in a very small house and we had at one point we had three German shepherds in the house with us We had two cats. We had a massive leaky fish tank. And there was no lock on the bathroom door. We were all sharing bedrooms. There was five of us in one normal-sized room at one point, all sharing. And so personal space was just not a thing. You were never alone. I remember there was one afternoon where, for some reason, everybody was out. And I was in the house on my own. And I made myself some Ravitas with cheese and Branson pickle and a cup of tea. And it was like the absolute life treat forever. And I just sat in the, in our front room, which was never empty and just slowly <laughs> ate my raw and cheese. And I was like, this is like a spa day for me. This is, <laughs> this is peace. Because if you are very introverted, which I am, silence and quiet and a lack of overwhelm is a very rare and, and beautiful thing when you're, when you've got seven siblings Maybe how I live now is a bit of a reaction to that kind of, I'm taking back all that time, all that quiet time that I didn't have, you know, no baby crying, no arguments going on, having a very extrovert elder sibling who had no friends and therefore had to get all of her socializing out of me. That was <laughs> a slightly draining experience. Child minding, you know, I spent a lot of time looking after kids. There was really no, no silence, no solitude. I used to dream about being a Benedictine monk and tending plants in an apothecary's garden. That was kind of my, that was my fantasy as a as a teenager. How much teenage girls are expected to take
1: on in comparison to how much teenage boys are, uh, are expected oh, to take yeah, on? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think it would have changed in a generation, but I look at families I know now, and it's still exactly the same, that the teenage girl does stuff and the teenage boy is kind
0: of left to just sort of do his own thing yeah or just not trusted yeah, so it somehow feels like an imposition for for a boy to do something, but for a girl, it's just kind of like well crack on oh, yeah and I mean I remember in our house there was this thing of because we had a lot of fish fingers, grilled fish fingers, which I was often in charge of preparing grilled fish fingers with mashed potato and pars- parsley sauce, and my dad would always get four fish fingers and then all the girls would get three, but then my brother, who's quite a lot younger than me, he would get four fish fingers as well and I think I guess that was my first kind of feminist moment of like hey hang on why do the girls get three fish fingers and the boy gets four fish fingers I mean it was also probably a mass mass thing in that you know there's only so many fish fingers in a packet and there were a lot of girls you know there's there's three boys and five girls so but yeah that was a bit like yeah hang on a minute I guess also because the, the girls were older in in our uh, in our family but we were all very much you know child rearing and you know, I spent lots of my teenage years carrying a child around on my hip, uh, yeah. which is probably partly to do with my now wonky posture, uh, you know, changing nappies, all of that sort of stuff. So, but yeah, it was very much the boys were not
1: expected to be doing that. Yeah. that needs to change people. I mean, I'm not raising any children, so I,
0: I can't do it myself. But, you know, I to <laughs> well, I'm also not raising children because I feel like I've done I've done my child with my child raising. So, yeah.
1: Do you know? I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'll do it again because it's worth stating. When I was about 13, till I was left school, my summer holidays, I basically ran a free child care centre because all of my aunts <laughs> worked. When I was 13, I had like a, an eight-year-old, twin seven-year-olds, my brother who'd have been about five, a next-door neighbour's baby that I used to look Ooh. after. And now, because I haven't got children, people talk to me like I don't know what I'm fucking talking
0: about. <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah, it's and ridiculous. It's bit, yeah. yeah, it's like try doing this when you're 13, yeah. and you, you know, you muddle through. And we didn't have YouTube in those days no. to check, you know, how things went. So yeah, and and also it's very especially with babies because they just want their mum, and mm. so you're just basically trying to distract them from. Crying and yeah. yeah, when they get a bit older, it's more interesting because then you can sort of interact with them and play games and like, and then you're in the sort of I'm an entertainer now. I'm basically yeah. trying to you know distracting them, trying to get them to go and get things for you to make your life easier. I think you learn a lot of skills, don't you, looking after young kids as yeah. a teenager? Or kind I, of.
1: I just used to take know. them to Woolworths and let them loose.
0: <laughs> yeah, about the pick the and the mix records. kids.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then every so often people are going. Who owns those children? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're mine. Come come back to me. Who's in charge here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't call the police. It's me. (laughs) Let's go back to um, Apocalypse. You've got a couple of actresses that I totally love in this. Let's start with Elizabeth Barrington. She is so flexible. Recently, I rewatched Camping because I was interviewing Vicky Pepperdine. In that Elizabeth Barrington is and she's almost invisible. She's so small and scared and pathetic. And in this, she is absolutely huge. She's, yeah. Yeah.
0: You must have been really pleased when you got her. Oh, so pleased, yeah. And she and she absolutely raised that character up into such exciting places. And yeah, she's there's a ferocity to her performance and she absolutely gets the kind of wiliness you know there's a bit of kind of wily coyote you know she's planning and scheming and yeah she's absolutely incredible and like just her craft you know it's it's because she's so unlike bernadette in real life and then this kind of transformation happens and it's just yeah it's it's just beautiful watching it it's like you know it's poetry in motion watching her go and all the little inflections and like she's Growls—that's the thing she started doing where she just kind of, (laughs) and it's just magnificent. And you know, we make her so dirty and grubby in the show, and she absolutely was. She was so generous about that, letting us do that to her. But she's just amazing, and she's so funny. I just think her comic timing is just absolute perfection I'm so in awe of her she's she's just fantastic they do all look absolutely repulsive and
1: (laughs) I feel like I need I watched quite a few together in time to do this and I Mm. felt like I needed a shower afterwards because (laughs) I kept thinking why don't they just if they're so bored why don't they just tidy up that house because it's fucking disgusting yeah but but
0: you stop noticing I mean that's you know I think that's the kind of that you do and also you're clinging to the before times, so it's kind of you well, know we can't take down the Hindu paraphernalia because a the Hindu is not over and you know Zara would absolutely not not allow that to happen, and also kind of there is a comfort in filth. I mean some some of the house did remind me of my childhood home of kind of you know just this kind of constantly rotating sort of just sea of stuff you know and there's a kind of storage of everything. So like you know the open carton of apple juice we had on our windowsill for you know from sort of 1986 to 1989, hmm. no frills own brand. Quick save orange juice and kind of that's been on a journey. You know, someone brought it in, they opened it, they put it <laughs> on the windowsill, and there's a thick layer of mold on there. And there fruit flies living <laughs> in it. There's a lot of that in apocalypse. like A lot of the items, a lot of them will recur, and you'll see because obviously items become very precious in a post-apocalyptic situation because it's all you've got. There is a kind of story, and so a lot of thought went into that from our production designer of kind of placing things and you know the water filtration system they've set up and kind of you know they've attempted to wash their underwear obviously at the start, but then stopped bothering with that and you know, sort of how things have piled up, which I think is really nice and adds a whole sort of extra layer of, of storytelling.
1: Last year, I, I went to New York and they lost my luggage and I did like three days in the same clothes and I felt like I wanted to die. It was awful. <laughs> and I could still shower and, and like wash my hair and stuff. I just had to keep putting the same clothes back on. Oh and man, was, that's grim. Yeah, it was really skeezy. <sighs> um, and what made matters worse was that I was with my nephew who was 15 and so he was absolutely not interested in what a bra starts to feel like after you've been wearing it for like so long. He was oh. like, yeah, please stop telling me that. So I sort
0: of had to suffer in silence as well. They're quite absorbent as well, aren't they, bras? They they very much sort of get a flavour quite quickly if you've been wearing them for a few days. Especially if you're doing stressful things, like, you know, if you're traveling, walking yeah. around a lot, you know, like yeah, I I feel for you there. There's nothing worse than putting back on some dirty clothes after you <laughs> had a shower <laughs> Sarah Millican the boss
1: she always says to, it starts to smell like meat after a while like, <laughs> Oh god! yeah you're so like horrible.
0: do I smell like that
1: is that yeah <laughs> is that like me what? I also want to talk to you about uh-huh. Kate O'Flynn now she was on the podcast earlier this year And I think she was genuinely surprised how massively funny I was about her because she seems quite normal. I think she is absolutely just immaculate as an actress. And spoiler alert, if you haven't watched this yet, the pairing of her and and Danny Dyer is, yeah, it's (laughs) remarkable. (laughs) Let's start with Kate and then we'll get
0: on to Danny Dyer. Okay, yeah. I mean, Kate is, I think the thing that struck me most was that I mean, I've seen her in loads of things, but she looks almost completely physically different in, in everything I've seen her in. Mm. And, you know, and that's not just costume and, and, and makeup. That's sort of the level of performance that she brings. She's sort of so chameleon-like that you, you, you almost kind of don't recognize it between different shows. I mean, she's just extraordinary in Hempoclips. Like, you know, nobody else could have played that character. She's just amazing and she's so funny. And she absolutely hits the notes of kind of being quite annoying as a, as a person to have around, but then also having this massive vulnerability. Mm. And so you do, you uh, you know, I ended up feeling torn in the way that the hens are of kind of like, Oh, well she, she is a lot, but like, but also I do feel for her. She's so brave as a performer, you know, she, she really, really trusts her instincts and goes there. And it's, so funny, and she's physically very funny. Mm. You know, the kind of the way she holds her body, and the you know, she does a couple of stunts in the show, and you, the amount of laughs she manages to get. You know, she's lying down for a lot of the show because she's, <laughs> she's ill and she's been quarantined. So, the amount of work she does with her face is just extraordinary. But yeah, she's she's just amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of hers. She's yeah. she's extraordinary. And so funny, and she can do comedy, she can do drama, she's she's the. The ultimate package
1: yeah I, I fully agree and just her saying the words Danny Dyer are funny <laughs> there is something intrinsically funny about using a full name like when they yeah. call Colin yeah. Robinson in uh, what we yeah. do in the shadows there is something but every time she says it it just makes me do a little smirk she's she's so great <laughs> so tell me did you have Danny Dyer in mind and were delighted when he said yes or did you write
0: that character as it could be anybody and let's see who says yes it it was always Danny Dyer and sort of the process from writing Danny Dyer to Danny Dyer saying yes was quite long and incredibly fraught because I was writing and, you know, the producers were kind of go, yeah, you know, go for it. We'll, we'll ask Danny. And I was like, but if Danny says no, then I've got nothing because I'm writing this character specifically to be my idea of Danny Dyer. Mm-hmm. So no one else can play this character and then unbelievably he said yes but if he hadn't it would have been a complete disaster um but yeah i mean there's only there's only one Danny Dyer and it it had to be him so i'm enormously grateful to him for saying yes and and coming along and being extraordinary so uh yeah it all all worked out well but for a long time i was just very very frightened as we got closer and closer to the shoot <laughs> kind of like if Danny doesn't say yes it's not just rewrites this is pulling the whole thing apart and having to start again um, yeah yeah it it happened and and he's the boss i mean why wouldn't you try and put danny dyer in something it sort of suddenly occurred to me why haven't i tried to do this before of course danny dyer yeah he's, he's so naturally funny and incredibly smart and i mean when i i met him uh i went to the makeup truck to meet him and i found myself wanting to call him danny dyer because it <laughs> feels inappropriate to call him danny and then mr dyer feels too formal <laughs> Because he is Danny Dyer. So, uh, yeah, it it made sense for him to always be referred to as Danny Dyer. He
1: knows who he is. So he does carry this element of, um, I don't know quite what I'm going to say here. Probably the best example of this is that episode of Who Do You Think You Are that he yeah. did. In which yeah. it's knowing, isn't it? He knows. He knows what he's doing. It's not all entirely natural and it and it just makes it so... So funny that episode when my dad was really really ill. Well, when he was dying, in fact, I, I, I we've been at the hospital for ages, and I just took an evening off and decided to come home. And then I got home and I didn't want to be here, so I went to a friend of mine's house, and we were just sort of saying I don't know what to do. and we were just sitting there, and he was saying I don't I don't really know what to say to you and what to do, and he said Danny Dyer's on. Um, Who do you think you are tonight? Should we just watch that? and i I can't believe how much I was laughing given the absolute horror that was my life at that moment, and yet yeah, it was such a breath of fresh air it was so so funny that
0: episode oh, that, that's so nice yeah he's very smart and as you say he knows he, he knows what people expect from him mm. and he can give that and then he can play with it a bit because he's so smart he doesn't just kind of play the stereotype of. I'm Danny Dyer. Yeah. He, he he messes with it a little bit and yeah. kind of you know, he's always he's always furthering the form of being <laughs> Danny Dyer, which is magnificent, you know, and he's a true working class hero, you know, and is a really, really good actor, as well as being incredibly naturally funny, an absolute icon and you know, totally a national treasure, you know, and I think that who do you think you are was yeah, you know I mean that was just kind of a an extraordinary comedy performance really wasn't it exactly like, you know exactly that i mean that geezer's got a drawbridge still <laughs> i think about now. <laughs> it makes, It makes right i mean that's so yeah. yeah he's just ad-libbing that i mean that's just amazing right yeah. like the quality of material that he can just he yeah can come up with is just amazing yeah i mean he's an absolute comedy force now talking about working class
1: that one raised by wolves was cancelled i actually wrote a thing about it saying this is an outrage because there are not enough working class people on telly or working class stories on telly let alone working class women on telly and I know that I mean there was a big backlash from your audience and I just wondered what it was like for you to go through when that happened and then how you feel now you've got a bit of time and things have moved on with hindsight
0: how you feel about it I guess I wasn't looking at it as a kind of I didn't take it as a a class thing because it was so personal to me mm. it was just kind of it's sad that this this has ended but it was it was such an amazing experience i learned an enormous amount doing it i'm incredibly proud of it and you know again in terms of kind of performers you know rebecca state and philip jackson Helen monk selected davies like amazing amazing performers i mean also you know kind of to a certain extent i sort of tried to see it through the lens of well them's to the, the brakes you know you get the gift of writing a sitcom for channel four long long-standing dream you know it's not going to last forever but yeah it was definitely it was a real shame that it went away because i do think it was doing something you know sort of representing working class life and finding the joy in it mm-hmm. you know because sometimes representations of working class life concentrate only on kind of you know it's the the cliche of the you know the burning mattress and everybody's crying all the time and wondering how they're gonna you know buy a sausage um, and you know which is which, which can be part of working yeah. class life but you know it's also nice to see the other side which is there is you know joy and a life of the mind and friendship and you know silly adventures and plans and schemes and people being bright and imaginative and so yeah I'm 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 glad it's out there I'm glad it's out there in the world.
1: Yeah because you're also involved in Hull Raisers aren't you with Lucy Beaumont? And Anne-Marie O'Connor. Yeah that's also about working class women or presents working class women in a way that is fundamentally different to. I mean, I don't want to pick out certain things, but let's say, for example, Fleabag, which I found really difficult to watch because there was nothing in it that represented me. You know, as a kid, my favourite thing to watch on TV was Roseanne because they were the only (laughs) other family I knew that had had their electricity cut off. Yeah. So it, it genuinely really spoke to me in that sense. Things don't need to speak to you. But when something really does, I think it. I think it's important. And yeah, I, th- I think there is still too much middle class angst in comedy and that could do with being a bit more working class normality in it.
0: Yeah, it can be quite a surprise kind of, when you do see a representation of something and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, having the placity cut off, like, to be like, oh, yeah, I didn't know. It's almost like you're kind of like, oh, I didn't know we were allowed to have that be a plot point yeah. in something, like, because the assumption is, well, it needs to be about not being able to get a bank loan to expand your cafe or, like, yeah. you know, I can't remember if that's the that's thing, Fleabag, but it's kind of around that area, isn't it? And kind of, you know, the things that would be considered too small or you know that th- th- those can be relevant story points I, you know i guess we're so used to kind of it has to be things to do with middle class life yeah and then seeing something from working class life portrayed with the same sort of gravitas and respect you know or lack of gravitas and respect if it's comedy it can sort of take you back on it and you'd be mm-hmm. like oh so we're allowed to make tv about this oh okay that's cool i guess for me because i watched bottom obsessively when i was a teenager and you know that absolutely formed my comedic sensibility you know kind of the, the pettiness in that show <laughs> kind of the representation of you know just two people going nowhere living in this kind of depressed mind escape and picking at each other that was very formative for me like oh okay you can make a show about this you know yeah. and we need more of it we need it to continue happening i really hope it doesn't go away and you know that we expand and get more and more of that Alma's
1: Not Normal was a really good slice yeah. of, of yeah. working-class life. Sophie Willen did a great job there. I mean, I am hopeful that, that more, especially female working-class writers are coming through. But yeah, it is it is really tough. Just sticking on Raised by Wolves, I heard a name in Apocalypse, and I thought, that name sounds really familiar to me and I don't know where it's come from. <laughs> and in the end, I ended up Googling it and it was the name Lee Rind. And it occurred to me that yeah. that is who Jermaine, or oh, it didn't occur to me, Google told me that that is who Jermaine yeah. was yeah, totally it's... in love with
0: in Raised by Wolves. Yeah. And he's there, he's in it. That is my Easter egg. That is my, because, you know, we're in the Midlands and obviously we all know each other in the Midlands. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, and it is the actor who plays Lee Rind in Is it the same uh, guy? Raised by Wolves. Kane's a jazz, yeah, he came and did a, a starry cameo for us. <laughs> uh, so it, it is actually him. So, yeah, because I figured, you know, it would be kind of fun to have Lee... As the, you know, he's he's not just Jermaine's fantasy; he's also uh, Zara's backup guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it seems so. Yeah, fitting, doesn't <laughs> it? Yeah.
1: Is it too soon to say? I mean, it is too soon. I know it's too soon to say. Will there be more
0: of it? But what I can say is, what else have you got on your plate at the moment? I've got a few things. I mean, I'm mainly absolutely knackered. Uh, that's what's
1: currently
0: <laughs> on on my plate there's going to be more hole raisers so that's oh excellent that's happening and then sort of as regards apocalypse obviously i massively got my fingers crossed for for series two i feel like i've tried to leave it on as much of a cliffhanger that it was mm. felt like they would have to press the the recommission button um after seeing the level of cliffhanger at the end of the series but obviously you never know but fingers crossed for that so yeah but I'm i'm mainly catching up on napping and working out strategies of ways to give up vaping is currently uh how interesting because I became fiercely addicted to to vapes while writing and now I've got a it's that whole thing of well I'll give up when this has happened and yeah. that and you know then the day the day never comes of okay well, this is the day where I've got literally nothing to do and I can't just concentrate on on not vaping Caroline, I'm
1: 50 later this year (laughs) and it is probably the deadline number 720 I've set myself for giving
0: (laughs) up smoking.
1: And I kind of keep saying, just start vaping. And I'm like, no, because I would just transfer it onto vaping and then I would just be that person. I mean, I know one is better than the (laughs) other, but... So you're a smoker, not a vapor. I am a smoker, not a vapor. I mean, I I periodically go to vaping and say, "Hey, I'm not a smoker anymore," and then it lasts about three days. And, about, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've not I've not said I'm doing it yet because I'm like I don't want to set myself up to fail. Yeah, so it's just.
1: <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us.
0: Thank you. and an issue for all women.